Welcome along to another Brexit briefing with me, Marcus Stead, exclusively on Talk Podcasts. It's been quite a week with well-publicised speeches from Jeremy Corbyn, Sir John Major and Theresa May. Stay tuned for the next 15 minutes for analysis about what they all mean. I'm broadcasting from my flat in Cardiff Bay, where life around here pretty much came to a standstill from late Thursday afternoon onwards, with levels of snow I've never seen in all the time I've lived here, and I moved in in about, what, 2009. We don't normally get that much snow around here because we're so close to the sea, but um, it's been very difficult. I could barely open my front door at uh, one point on Thursday and Friday. It's, It's crazy, really. Well, it's Sunday night when I'm recording this, and life is now gradually starting to get back to normal. I'm guessing that the schools will be open around here tomorrow more than likely, but it'll probably be a few days yet before things fully return to normal in the higher ground in places like the Welsh Valleys. We are probably over the worst, but um, if you're listening to this while driving on Monday, do take extra care. Right, let's crack on. Back last Monday, um, Jeremy Corbyn gave a speech in Coventry to the CBI, um, the Confederation of British Industry, and that in itself is something of a surprise. For those of you who aren't familiar with Jeremy Corbyn's background, he has about a 40-year track record of Euroscepticism. His mentor, his hero, if you like, was Tony Benn. And Tony Benn, for all my disagreements with him, when it came to Euroscepticism, he was very good indeed. In fact, I heard him speak twice in Cardiff, once in 2002 and once in, I think it was 2007, when he was getting quite elderly by then, but still managed to address a packed audience in a theatre. And Tony Benn said, if anyone's ever got any power over you, you should always ask five questions. They are, what power do you have? How did you obtain that power? In whose interests do you use that power? To whom are you accountable? And how can I get rid of you? And if we were to ask those questions of, say, the European Commission commissioners, like, well, Peter Mandelson was one for many years, Chris Patton was another. What power do you have? Well, quite a lot of power. How did you get that power? Well, certainly not by being elected. They're all unelected. In whose interests do you use that power? You could certainly argue it's not in the interests of ordinary people. To whom are you accountable? Nobody. How do I get rid of you? I can't. And Tony Benn was, as I say, very close to Jeremy Corbyn for a long, long time. And their positions, they were as thick as thieves. And... Jeremy Corbyn opposed Maastricht, Lisbon, Nice, entry to the Euro. He was a Eurosceptic for many, many years. And since he's become Labour leader, he seems to be... I wish he'd toughen up a bit. That's his problem. Before the referendum, he went on the, um, the Adam Hill's last leg show on Channel 4. And Adam Hill's asked him a question which was intended as a joke, but was actually a very good question. And the question was, on a scale of 1 to 10... Where would you put your enthusiasm for the European Union? And Mr. Corbyn replied, seven or seven and a half. And it seemed to me as though Mr. Corbyn, whenever he talked about the EU in the run-up to the 2016 referendum, he sounded like a hostage reading out his captors' demands because his backbenches consist almost entirely of Blairites, Brownites and even Kinnockites in some of the cases of the older ones. Um, And he was trying to appease them, but it did not work because even months after the EU referendum, there was a leadership challenge from the Europhile Owen Smith. 
And we had a situation where the grassroots membership, which has swollen in recent years, was fiercely loyal to Mr Corbyn, and sure enough, he won it quite comfortably. But the MPs, the people who have to work with him day in and day out, um, overwhelmingly supported Mr Smith. So Corbyn should have learned from that that no matter what he does, he cannot appease the Blairites and the Brownites on his backbenches. The likes of Stephen Doughty and David Lammy and Chukaramuna will always look for an excuse to topple him. So why not stick to your instincts, Mr Corbyn? We know you're a Eurosceptic. You have been for years. I've been saying it. George Galloway, your friend of goodness knows how many years, at least three decades, probably more than that, has been saying it toughen up they'll use any means they can to get rid of you don't try and appease them so there was jeremy corbyn in coventry last monday talking to an establishment audience let's listen in for just a minute on what he had to say our message has been consistent since the vote to leave 20 months ago we respect the result of the referendum our priority is to get the best deal for people's jobs living standards and the economy We've long argued that a customs union is a viable option for the final deal. So Labour would seek to negotiate a new, comprehensive UK-EU customs union to ensure there are no tariffs with Europe and to help avoid any need whatsoever for a hard border in Northern Ireland. Some seem very keen on downgrading our trading links with Europe. But we do not believe that deals with the US or China would be likely to compensate for a significant loss of trade with our neighbours in the European Union, and the government's own leaked assessments show exactly that. Those deals would risk dragging Britain into a race to the bottom on vital protections and on rights at work. Before we go any further, it's worth clarifying what the customs union actually is. It's not the same thing as the single market at all, and it's important to differentiate between the two. The customs union ensures all member countries charge the same import duties to non-members. For Brexit to be a success, it is essential that the UK is not part of the customs union. It will prevent our country from being able to agree free trade deals with the wider world, or even set tariffs on our own terms to countries where no free trade deal exists. The importance of not being part of the customs union cannot be understated. If you are paying close attention, you may have noticed that Mr Corbyn said a customs union rather than the customs union. I'll let you decide if that's just semantics. But sat prominently in the audience was Shadow Brexit Secretary Sir Keir Starmer, the Blairite lawyer who passionately believes in the European Union. Oh, and by the way, didn't Chukaramuna resign from Jeremy Corbyn's front bench last year over Corbyn's refusal to back membership of the customs union? Jeremy Corbyn had a choice to make. He could either back his own instincts, going back more than 40 years, which was solidly Eurosceptic, along with the wishes of the three million, at least three million, working class Labour voters in the Labour heartlands of the South Wales Valleys and the north of England who voted leave. Alternatively, he could play hostage to the Blairite and the Brownite backbenchers. Mr Corbyn made the wrong choice last week. His credibility and his reputation as a man of deep principle have been mortally damaged. 
this may yet have consequences for Labour at the ballot box. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts on Talk Podcasts. Now, I, I recorded something a couple of weeks ago, which anyone with an interest in media law, the laws of libel and defamation will love. It's a 40-minute interview with sports broadcaster and Sky News newspaper reviewer Johnny Gould, who was wrongly implicated in the President's Club dinner and the fallout from that back in January. And if you've got any interest at all in media law, mistaken identity, anything like that, and if you're falsely accused of something either in a newspaper or indeed on a website in the modern era, this is one for you, really. Um, Have a look. Look it up on Talk Podcasts. I'm not going to go through it all now. It'll take far too long, but it really is a fascinating 40-minute or so interview. Don't forget also um, Talk Motoring with Elliot Spiteri. The first edition, which was just before Christmas, is still very relevant and still very enjoyable. And there's going to be a second edition with Elliot in just a few days' time. So stay tuned for that. And the music you're listening to now is called Brazil Samba. Nice, isn't it? On the 28th of February, former Prime Minister Sir John Major, Prime Minister between 1990 and 1997, said in a speech that MPs should have a free vote on whether to accept or reject the final Brexit deal. In a speech in London in which he criticised the government's so-called unrealistic negotiating strategy, he said Parliament could insist on the people having a final say in a further referendum. Let's listen to a minute of what Sir John had to say. It's already agreed that Parliament must pass legislation giving effect to the deal. A meaningful vote has been promised. This must be a decisive vote in which Parliament can accept or reject the final outcome, or send the negotiators back to seek improvements, or order a referendum so the public may approve what has been determined. That is what parliamentary sovereignty really means. But to minimise divisions in our country, and between and within the political parties, I believe the government should take a further very brave and bold decision. I believe they should invite Parliament to accept or reject the final outcome on a free vote. I assume that younger listeners won't have much recollection of Sir John Major. I was, what, at primary school for most of his time as Prime Minister, but I I was politically aware even then. Obviously, I didn't understand all the intricacies, but I was aware of certain things going on, and in the years that followed as I got older, I read up on what happened during that era. And for those of you who don't know or don't remember it that well, Sir John Major was champion of the exchange rate mechanism, which was the precursor to the euro. And the exchange rate mechanism effectively meant that All the different currencies that were one day to join the euro had to be within certain levels of exchange rate. And as a result, the the pound was at far too high a level and it was damaging our exports and it was was not a good situation. And it led to a recession in 1992, a a major recession, which it took us several years to recover from. Um, So that, that wasn't a great legacy of his. Sir John Major also pushed the Maastricht Treaty through Parliament... Now, the Maastricht Treaty was what turned what was the European community into the European Union as we know it today. It, it was the treaty that turned it from a largely economic union into a more political union. And he pushed it through Parliament on a whipped vote, a very aggressively whipped vote. 
And um, it went. It was a tied vote, and the Speaker voted with the government, and therefore the Maastricht Treaty was passed. He was very firm indeed with Conservative MPs, and they were whipped and they were harassed into voting with him. So for him to now say he cares about parliamentary sovereignty and there should be a free vote strikes me as absolutely extraordinary. Does he think we don't have memories? And the other thing to remember is... This whole Brexit situation could have been avoided if it wasn't for Sir John Major, because other countries, which were pushing through the Maastricht Treaty, granted the people a referendum. And if a referendum was held in this country at that time, around about 1991-92, and the people rejected the Maastricht Treaty, we could have had some sort of associate membership with the European Union, the sort of trade deals which are apparently being negotiated now, which we, we could well be heading towards. And this whole situation could have been avoided. He's not practising what he preaches. And another thing to bear in mind is, is that in the years that immediately followed Margaret Thatcher's departure from Downing Street, she was seen as a bit of a thorn in the side of John Major, particularly over Maastricht, but over other issues as well. And he seemed to get increasingly irritated by her interventions in his government, and she saw herself as, I think she described herself once actually, as a backseat driver. And as I say, it made John Major's life difficult. Is he not doing exactly the same thing to Theresa May now? One other thing to bear in mind about Sir John Major is that he receives around £1 million per year for his work with the Carlyle Group, which is an American multinational private equity, alternative asset management financial services corporation and also an arms dealing group so maybe sir john honest john as he was once colloquially known has another motive who wanted to keep britain in the european union just saying right on to our final item and we're a little bit pushed for time so i'm going to cut to the chase on this one on friday of last week theresa may made a speech in which she explained why the United Kingdom cannot stay in any form of customs union. Let's briefly listen to what she had to say. The UK has been clear it is leaving the customs union. The EU has also formed a customs union with some other countries. But those arrangements, if applied to the UK, would mean the EU setting the UK's external tariffs, being able to let other countries sell more into the UK, without making it any easier for us to sell more to them, or the UK signing up to the common commercial policy. That would not be compatible with a meaningful independent trade policy. It would mean we had less control than we do now over our trade in the world. Neither Leave nor Remain voters would want that. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounded pretty clear to me. But then, one of the BBC's most prominent political correspondents, Norman Smith, tweeted the following... Brexiteers grit their teeth and smile in response to PM's Brexit speech, even though little in it for them. End of quote. What a bizarre thing to say. Little in it for Brexiteers, apart from leaving the single market, leaving the customs union, ruling out any form of customs union, taking back control of borders, laws and money, the end of European Court of Justice jurisdiction in the UK, and the freedom to diverge. In the real world, Brexiteers are mostly backing the speech, knowing it gives them a lot of what they want. There are a few little gripes along the way. It wasn't perfect. But for Norman Smith to interpret it through that prism strikes me as absolutely extraordinary and epitomises 
the sort of bizarre reporting we get across the BBC's output on Brexit. And that brings us to the end of this Brexit briefing. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts and I'll be back with another Brexit briefing soon. Until then, goodbye.